This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Worldview from the Irish Times. This is Patrick Smith taking over in the chair from Dennis Staunton, who's been posted to London as our London editor. We'll be having a look at American gun culture. On Monday, an 11-year-old East Tennessee boy was taken into custody for murder for shooting and killing an 8-year-old girl, a neighbour, with his shotgun because she would not show him her puppies. On Friday, in Roseburg, Oregon, 10 died in a college shootout, reflecting the seemingly remorseless rise in mass shootings. After the 2012 attack at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, in which 26 people died, pressures to toughen gun laws rose, but nothing has happened yet. Why? Back in Rome, after a hugely successful visit to the US, Pope Francis has plunged into a synod on the family, where issues like the Church's attitude to divorce couples are likely to produce sharp divisions. Will the Pope prevail? But first to Berlin, where on the 25th anniversary of the country's unification, our correspondent Derek Scali reflects on the state of Germany and how the twin crises of refugees and Volkswagen have forced Germans to ask searching questions of themselves about who they are. Last weekend, Germany celebrated 25 years of unity. It was remembering the, the day in 1990 when two Germanys became one. But I was watching the festivities and the fireworks and it it all felt very uneasy a bit like a a family reunion in one of those Nordic crime thrillers where everything looks perfect but you know something bad is lingering under the surface and what's lingering on the surface in Germany are two crises that have come at once one is the the refugee crisis and the other is the Volkswagen scandal and there's a real sense here that a lot of what's been stitched together in the last decades in Germany could really be pulled apart by these unprecedented these unprecedented developments the first is the refugee crisis you may remember around a month ago Germany doubled its asylum forecast for this year to 800,000 well this week, uh, we heard that this forecast will probably be almost doubled again to one and a half million asylum applications in Germany this year. Germany is a big country, but even by German standards, this is an epic challenge. And the, the mood here is changing very, very quickly. A month ago, we had politicians praising the pragmatism of German volunteers who were helping with refugees. And one month later, the same politicians are warning that Germany's swamped and that Germany's refugee resources are exhausted. And while Angela Merkel is staying firm and saying that the right to asylum is non-negotiable, um, many of her allies are cranking up the populist rhetoric. They're a little bit worried by opinion polls uh, and the rise, uh, the renaissance of uh, far-right fringe groups. Even the centre-left Social Democrats, Merkel's coalition allies in Berlin, have shifted. They've printed 10,000 copies of Germany's basic law, the post-war constitution, and they say they want to instruct new arrivals uh, in Arabic uh, that Germany's core values, things like uh, gender equality, they're non-negotiable. So this is all happening very quickly, and there's there's definitely a sort of slightly desperate or defensive mood in the air because Germany, above all countries in Europe, really struggles to define itself, struggles to define its values and traditions. Um, in Germany, it's 
down to history, like so often here, um, this is a classic belated nation. It was unified only for the first time in 1871, and this is a federal country. It's a, a collection of kingdoms and peoples, mentalities and histories, and most people here would identify themselves as a Bavarian or a Berliner first rather than a German. So trying to distill a notion of Germanness and then demand that others live up to this is very difficult when you can't actually do it yourself. And we've this has really been a red thread through German history from Kaiser to Hitler, disastrous experiments in nationalism to the post-war era where whether you were in Bonn or you're in East Berlin, nationalism was exercised from uh, political debate and national identity was put in deep freeze. So that left most Germans on the hunt for surrogates for national pride, things like football or technical prowess. I often say Germans were like a nation of men out of touch with their feelings. They were, but they were still happy to watch soccer or tinker in their garages. And this tinkering has served them well. Look at the list of German engineering giants from Siemens and Bosch to Daimler and Volkswagen. And that's what makes this Volkswagen um, emission scandal so disastrous. Um, the cost of fixing the cars uh, with, the, uh, with the defeat devices uh, will run into tens of billions of euro. But the emotional cost to Germany is impossible to quantify because Volkswagen was really a pillar of German identity that's been knocked out just when Germany could least afford it. Because let's not forget the Germans, for all the talk of German dominance in Europe, they've barely digested the Eurozone crisis and the burden that they feel has been put on them. Now they're facing new uncertainties and new, unburden, new burdens. And uh, at the same time, they're being sort of forced to do a, an on-the-fly reconstitution of German identity. So... We've got uh, huge challenges on two fronts coming, and uh, as Germany is really struggling to face both challenges, I suppose the issue is after decades of walking with crutches, things like soccer prowess or Volkswagen engineering, this is a unified Germany at 25 years old, now under pressure, trying to learn to walk unassisted and fast. For Worldview, this is Derek Scally in Berlin. You're listening to the Irish Times. For many Americans, the right to bear arms, which is enshrined in the Second Amendment to the Constitution, is as much part of their identity as Volkswagen is to Germans. And with one gun in private hands for every man, woman and child, the country can be said to be awash with guns. There are more than 33,000 deaths from gun-related violence every year. 60% of them are suicide and most of the rest homicide. That's an average of 92 every day. Since 1970, more Americans, one and a half million, have died from guns uh, and gun violence than have died in all US wars going back to the American Revolution. To discuss the issue, I'm joined by Simon Carswell in Washington. Ten died in the Oregon massacre on Friday, where Christopher Harper Mercer went on the rampage in Roseburg, uh, in Umqua Community College, uh, Roseburg. Simon, can you look back on the way the incident developed and what do we know about what drove this particular killer? Well, uh, the, the gunman, uh, Chris Harper Mercer, he arrived in uh, a writing class that he'd been studying in um, on Thursday and he's in the classroom in Umqua Community College uh, and he opened fire. He seemed to have a grievance with uh, organized religion and also had a, a love of guns. Um, he asked each of his victims, so he, he ordered the class, uh, after killing the professor in the class, he ordered the class to lie on the floor, and he asked them to stand up 
uh, and they had to say what religion they were. And he then uh, proceeded to shoot uh, shoot them, and he uh, he killed nine uh, and injured uh, another seven in the classroom. Um, some more details have emerged about him since uh, since the shootings. Um, he seems to have been suffering from Asperger's syndrome, and his mother, who was a nurse, uh, he lived with her alone uh, in an apartment, and uh, she had been also very protective both of him and also uh, of his interest in love of guns and, and seemed to have encouraged uh, his interest in guns as well his online postings uh, that have been analysed in detail since the shootings have shown that he has had a huge interest in guns. He also interestingly had a interest in the IRA. There's a lot of pro-IRA propaganda on his social media pages. And he also took, took issue with um, organised religion. He also had uh, an interest in previous mass shootings, um, particularly the shootings that took place in August by um, disgruntled former television employee Vester Lee Flanagan, who killed on air a television reporter and cameraman. And he, he was remarked online uh, in, in comments that are apparently uh, written by him, where he said that it seems like more the more people you kill, the more you're in the limelight. So obviously he saw that Vester Lee Flanagan was getting some publicity and some attention from the killings, which seems to in some way have prompted um, Mercer to carry out his own um, carry out his own shootings. He also complained in a document that's been reported today that was obtained um, after the killing that he complained about not having a girlfriend. So there seems to be a multitude of issues about this young man who was clearly disturbed, who clearly had um, mental health issues. Uh, and also, as it turned out, he was able to buy uh, guns legally through, um, through licensed uh, gun dealers. There was no suggestion that he had particularly strong political views or religious views. Is is, is that the, the case? And and none of the, the problems that he had were flagged up in advance? No, they don't appear to be, although looking back at some of the online postings and discussions that his mother was involved in, she made no secret that he had um, uh, some uh, learning disabilities, developmental issues, but she seems to have um, worked very hard to uh, to to deal with those, and he had gone to a school with learning for students with learning difficulties, and he had graduated from that school. And in fact, in her online posting, she is actually she did praise the fact that she had managed to get through that and deal with it, and he did in fact end up enrolling in this community college. But his main beef seems to have been with uh, with organised religion. And, and and no particular politics. And how how typical of of other mass killers do you think he he is? Well, I think he's it's very typical uh, in terms of his ability to buy guns. If you look back at all the mass shootings that have taken place in the last two to three years, and um, they all followed the same uh, same pattern, uh, same um, same issues arise in in the case of many of the other killers. They had mental health issues. They had. Uh, grievances, they were disgruntled, either former employees or disgruntled about how they've been treated by uh, by people in the past, either through employment or, or in school, and they were all had uh, legally obtained firearms and could easily pass background checks. Um, in the case of, uh, of Mercer, he had um, uh, 14 firearms at his disposal, six of which he brought to the school on the day of the shooting. 
So they all followed the same trend. They were all quite disturbed, yet they were still able to buy guns legally. Now, Obama's eulogy in June to one of the victims of the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, was widely considered one of his greatest uh, addresses. And he seems to have stepped up his tone in response to uh, these, these killings. Um, and, and admits that it is one of the big failures of his ter- term of office that he has, uh, has failed to do anything about uh, gun control. And is that, is that really the reality, that it's all, uh, in, in terms of presidential intervention, uh, rather too late, that he can't really do anything? Well, I think it is. I mean, you could see the anger and frustration on his face when he addressed the media last Thursday after the shootings in Roseburg. And this was remarkably the 15th time in his presidency that he's had to address an issue, uh, a respond to a mass shooting. Um, and his comments were very, very strong. You could, you know, kind of see the veins popping in his uh, forehead when he was talking. He said somehow this has become routine, the reporting's routine, his response is routine, and he said we've become numb to this. Um, he attacked, as he has before, politicians in the National Rifle Association, a very well-organized lobbying group that, uh, that, that represents the gun manufacturers and gun owners. And he challenged them and their view that the answer is more guns and fewer gun safety laws. Um, and he was happy to politicize the issue. You know, he's, he's urged voters, uh, when he spoke to the media, he urged voters to make this a single issue. Uh, you know, if there are aspects that of, of, the, of a public representative that voters agree with, that should not dominate their thinking. They should vote on a single issue of gun control. And if their congressman or governor is against gun control, then they should vote them out. They should vote against them. Um, so he's been quite strong in this. And one of the interesting things he said, and he has said this before, he asked uh, the news media to tally up the number of Americans killed through terrorist attacks and the number killed by gun violence. And a number of media outlets have done that. And the figures are, are, are remarkable and shocking. Uh, he, the Washington Post, for example, tallied up the figures and said that 18 people died in terror attacks in 2015. Uh, where uh, in 2014, I should say, and then 9,948 have been killed by gun violence so far this year. So these are pretty shocking figures and really prove his point that uh, America has a gun violence, a uh, major gun violence problem, an ac- epidemic that its politicians are not really responding to. I think there's some evidence too, isn't there now, that there's a changing attitude in the general public. While there's still very strong support for the NRA on on the the far right, um, there is now a majority in polls supporting gun checks, mandatory gun checks on on people um, buying, buying guns. Well, there is, and polls show that the vast majority of Americans support the idea of gun controls. Nine out of ten Americans in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook killings in this school in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, after those shootings, the vast majority of Americans said they supported stronger gun controls and measures to keep guns out of the hands of criminals and, and mentally ill. But if you look back, even even after that shocking incident, that massacre in Newtown, um, Obama tried to ban certain military-style assault rifles he tried to limit the size of ammunition magazines, and he also wanted to expand background checks to most gun sales. And he still was unable to pass legislation, uh, get legislation passed in Congress. Uh, it, it fell in the Senate, um, which was actually controlled by the Democrats at that time. And he described that as a pretty shameful day. Um, and, you know, a number of Democrats from, from red-leaning or traditionally uh, conservative states 
voted um, against those measures, so he can't even get the support within his own party. And I guess it says a lot when Congress can't agree after the Sandy Hook massacre, or even after one of their own members, Gabby Giffords, the Arizona congresswoman, was shot at a, at a campaign rally. If they can't get agreement after those, it seems unlikely that they'll get any agreement in Congress to bring in gun control measures after something like Roseburg. It, it, it's come up uh, in the presidential campaign. It has. Um, Jeb Bush, the former Florida governor, was quite dismissive of it, and you know he cautioned against a knee-jerk reaction. And he said, um, "Stuff happens," which uh, a comment that has drawn a lot of criticism uh, from from many uh, of his opponents. Uh, and Obama spoke about it as well. He said he, he didn't even think that he had to react to that one. Um, he's quite dismissive of what Bush said. But <clears throat> on the Democratic side, it's led to some interesting debate amongst the candidates. Hillary Clinton has come out quite strongly at campaign rallies in Florida and, and yesterday in New Hampshire. And she has said that she wants to bring in a mix of measures, both legislative and executive measures, if she were president, such as closing background, uh, background check loophole, where somebody can buy a gun even before the background check is complete. And that happened in the case of the killer in the, uh, in the Charleston shooting, where uh, Dylan Roof, uh, 21-year-old, was accused of killing nine people with a Glock pistol at an historical black church in Charleston. And Clinton also wants to allow victims to sue gun manufacturers and tighten background, uh, background checks on gun sales at gun shows and online. At the moment, you can buy a gun at a gun show or you can buy it on the internet without actually going through a background check. And Clinton has also promised to take administrative action, which is requiring any person who's attempting to sell significant numbers of guns to be deemed to be in the business of buying. So she's really come out quite strongly on it and emotionally as well at the New Hampshire rally. She introduced Nicole Hockley, who's the mother of a six-year-old child, Dylan Hockley, who was killed in Newtown in 2012. And she got quite emotional addressing, uh, introducing um, Nicole Hockley on the stage. But what's interesting within the Democratic um, presidential race is that Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator, the self-described independent socialist um, from Vermont, he has um, managed to outflank Hillary Clinton to the left on many issues. But he's got a difficulty on the gun control area because um, he comes from a state where it's very popular. Hunting is very, very popular. There's a proud record of gun ownership up there. And he has been less uh, forthright than Hillary Clinton coming out in support of gun control measures. He has said that he's called for a comprehensive approach to deter mass killings and called for sensible gun control legislation, which prevents guns from being used by people who should not have them. But he's also said he doesn't know that anybody, anybody uh, is aware of a magic solution to this issue. Um, and again, his track record is going to cause him some problems in the campaign. Uh, as a member of the House of Representatives, he voted against the Brady Bill in the 1990s, which would have required background checks. And then more recently than that, as a senator in the 2005, he voted in favor of a bill, of a bill to shield gun manufacturers and dealers from lawsuits. And to the left of Sanders, you have Martin O'Malley coming out wanting much stronger gun control measures, in fact, going further than Hillary Clinton, where he's uh, proposing a whole suite of measures to, to enforce uh, stronger gun control. Thank you very much, Simon. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. 
Of the Catholic Church's Synod on the Family, which will run for the next three weeks, one New York Times columnist has said that it, quote, promises to be the most fraught three weeks of Roman Catholic history in my lifetime. A great deal is at stake. Patsy McGarry in Rome. Tell us now, Patsy, press reports on the Pope's visit to the US suggest it was an enormous success. Is that how it's seen in Rome? Oh, absolutely, they were uh, thrilled with the reception Pope Francis got everywhere he went to the United States, uh, not least in the Houses of Congress, uh, where he made a very, well, a very cleverly crafted speech, quoting in particular, referring to four very prominent Americans, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Catholic activist Dorothy Day, Catholic uh, contemplative Thomas Merton, all of whom would have quite prominence in religious circles, certainly in America, and indeed political circles where Martin Luther King and um, uh, Abraham Lincoln were concerned. Also, his address to the UN with its huge emphasis on elim- the elimination of poverty, which coincided with the new sustainable document on uh, the elimination of world hunger by 2030, for instance, and signed by ourselves in Ireland and 192 other states. Uh, then we had the real purpose of the visit, which is the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia, where it's estimated approximately one million people turned out to see him, even though those who attended the actual Mass itself uh, his final mass in the United States was 150,000. So they were very pleased about it. There was a slight jarring note at the end over his meeting with Kim Davis, this um, uh, public official in Kentucky, who refused to sign certificates for same-sex marriage. In fact, she refused to sign certificates for both heterosexual and uh, gay marriages. And uh, she did some time, uh, she was sentenced for, for doing so in the United States in the court there. She was uh, somehow or other found her way into the papal nunciature in Washington and was presented to the Pope, as were many other people, and he gave her a rosary bead and uh, told her to be strong, which is interpreted by her in a particular way. The Vatican clearly was quite miffed about this because when they found out, they simply issued a statement confirming that it had happened. And since then, they've qualified that by saying that the meeting wasn't planned Pope didn't really know who he had met on the occasion, that she was just one of many other people. And over here in Rome, it's been speculated this week, anyhow, that the papal nuncio, who was due to retire, anyhow, the papal nuncio to the United States, due to retire at the age of 75 in January, would probably be gone on the day of his uh, reaching that age. Now, the the synods in in Rome is a very different type of event, an internal event in which 270 bishops and 74 cardinals will try and set a tone for the papacy. The Pope will not have it all his own way. Uh, but yes. He will not ha- uh, there are 270 bishops altogether, including 74 cardinals. Uh, the Pope, by his own decision and by the style he set at the preliminary Senate to this one last year, uh, the extraordinary Senate of the family, is encouraging discussion and real debate and has emphasized that again this year, that he wants real discussion, real debate, real engagement, not the uh, what was the case in the past, the sort of um, laudatory comment on what the Pope's various uh, pronouncements on marriage, etc., were, uh, as was the case under Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict, when really synods of bishops were really rubber stamp affairs. Here he wants real discussion on the realities being faced by families in the world today, on the realities of what family life is in the world today, where Quite a number of people don't bother marrying at all uh, and raise families in an unmarried context. And just to face up those realities in the context of the Church's teaching, and he has reaffirmed that, that is, uh, they believe in the indissolubility of marriage. He emphasized that at the opening Mass of the Synod last Sunday in St. Peter's, based on the Gospel of the Day, of the Gospel of St. Luke. But that's the doctrine. The emphasis here is on the pastoral, how to apply that doctrine in a, a situation where there are so many varied forms of family in this world today in a non-judgmental, compassionate, as, as some would say, Christian 
fashion in the very, very broadest sense of the word. And that is the challenge facing this. And it's only now in its second day. It's just beginning to get down to business. Um, the, it has been broken up, broken up into working groups. They will uh, meet this afternoon for the first time. Uh, and so we will get down to the real business of debate and dialogue. Uh, so it's anticipated that it will be quite contentious because, as became clear last year, there's a very strong traditional element who want no change. There's an equally strong liberal element who believes the church must face up to the realities of the time recognize the signs of the times and engage with those in the applying in applying church teaching the one of the critical issues and you've referred to it in part is, is it relates to the indissolubility of marriage and there are proposals that are coming from cardinal casper from the german church and from the jesuits about providing some kind of a path to communion for remarried divorcees where do you think the pope will stand on this and do you think that, that progress will be made well, this is quite fascinating because today the Pope, in addressing the Synod this morning, this Tuesday morning, made the point that this issue must not dominate the Synod, that there are other issues that to be discussed and to be addressed by the Synod itself. And at the press conference this afternoon, um, a question was raised as to whether or not this issue of, of uh, communion for divorce and remarried Catholics was a doctrinal issue or a discipline issue. And the Primate of Canada who responded to the question said, we don't know. We haven't agreed among ourselves whether it is a doctrinal matter are a matter of discipline. And of course, if it is a matter of discipline, it's far easier to deal with than if it is perceived by the bishops to be a doctrinal matter. Now, the, the uh, Synod opened with controversy over the disciplining of Christoph Haramza, a priest uh, who has been basically almost laicized uh, for, for speaking out in favour of gay rights for, for uh, Catholic priests. Uh, and uh, what, what's, has he managed to set the tone for, for the conference? Well, I'm afraid not. Um, there's been very little discussion about him here. A question was raised at the press conference yesterday and it wasn't even answered by the, the, the panel presented to the media. Um, again, he has been removed from his, his position in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's not clear whether he, he will be laicized or not. It seems obvious that he must be because he has declared himself to be openly gay. He's in a relationship. Uh, it's not clear what the nature of that relationship is, whether or not he's abiding by his vows of celibacy. Um, um, if, if it could be proven otherwise, he would be laicized, I imagine, but that's unclear as of now. And does the issue of, of uh, homosexuality and the Church's attitude to it uh, form part of the agenda for the meeting? It did last year. Uh, it is also, it has been raised uh, in discussion today, I believe, this morning. Again, the emphasis has been very, very much on the pastoral attitude to gay people. It's been pointed out that gay people are people's brothers, members of their families, etc. So it's carrying on the tone set in the earlier part of the Synod last year, or the extraordinary Synod last year, where Pope Francis, at the initial report, talked about the being, I mean, it took everybody by surprise, this very conciliatory tone towards gay people in the situation they find, find themselves in. That seems to be the tone so far in these two days as well. A similar tone has been adopted. And, and women? The issue. And the position of women in the church? That doesn't appear to be addressed yet. I mean, uh, one of the extraordinary situations about this synod is, as it is, a synod of bishops, and of course, as we know, there are no women bishops in the Catholic Church. So you've got 270 men discussing family uh, and no woman uh, with a vote anyhow participating. There are 18 couples taking part, nine of whom, of course, are women, but the couples don't have any vote. Uh, they don't have any role in the decision, decisions to be made by this synod itself. But the issue of women in general hasn't been addressed so far. At least we haven't been told that it has been addressed so far. And where in the general um, panoply of, of, of political positions does the Catholic Church in Ireland stand in, 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 at the Synod? Well, we're represented here by two, the Irish Catholic Church, that is, by two uh, archbishops, the Catholic primate, Archbishop Eamon Martin, 
and the Archbishop of Dublin, Archbishop Jim Martin, who of course is the much more experienced of the two. Archbishop Eamon Martin became primate in August of last year on the retirement of Cardinal Sean Brady when he reached the age of 75. Uh, Archbishop Eamon Mar- or Jim Martin has been uh, Archbishop of Dublin since 2004. Well, he was appointed coadjutor in 2003, and he, he attended the extraordinary synod last year. It is Archbishop Eamon Martin's very, very first synod. In fact, we just met him a short time ago and uh, he's just easing himself into the whole procedures uh, of this senate and getting used to the methodology, uh, which they all are, in fact, uh, because it's quite different to last year. Um, so uh, it remains to be seen how much these our two uh, archbishops will contribute to this senate. But where would they place themselves, in the liberalising wing or the, the more conservative it's wing? hard to know. I'd say that, I mean, Archbishop Jim Martin's indication would indicate from his performance last year is very much concerned uh, with pastoral sensitivity to people. Um, I'd say that would be the same where Archbishop Eamon Martin is concerned. Um, they would not be hard-line doctrinal men, either of them. They wouldn't be dogmatists. Uh, of course, they hold to the teaching of the Church, and they wouldn't want to see that changed. But it's the application of those teachings would be done uh, and would be spoken of uh, in a compassionate sense. Thank you very much, Patsy. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Derek Scally in Berlin, Simon Carswell in Washington, and Patsy McGarry in Rome, and to Sinead O'Shea, who produced the programme, and Gary White, who did the sound.